Good morning. If you would grab a Bible, let's turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, where we'll begin our time of study. Matthew chapter 5. Appreciate Tuck uh, leading us in those songs. Uh, that last one reminding us of uh, the comfort we find in Jesus when uh, things look bleak, when we have trouble in life. I am thankful to Tuck because, as you'll see in just a moment, he uh, texted me on Friday and asked what I'm talking about in this hour, because uh, the song leaders here do a great job of trying to coordinate what we do in our services with what we sing. And uh, so I texted back what I was talking about, and I didn't know how he would find any songs that had to do with any of them. You'll see what I mean in just a moment. Uh, but he did a great job by directing our thoughts there. It's good to see you. Uh, I was gone last week. I was in a meeting in Martinville, uh, as I mentioned. And because of that, we weren't able to do our Q&A on the second Sunday in this hour like we normally do. And so I told you on the first, two weeks ago, we were going to do it today. So here we are. It is Q&A morning. And uh, you have submitted several questions. And I have a lot of opportunities this morning to get myself into trouble in trying to answer your questions. And I mean it. It's true. Uh, and uh, again, you'll see what I mean in just a moment. So uh, the first question I want to address this morning is, uh, what does the Bible... Oh, hang on. Don't read that. Let me explain what Q&A morning is for those who are visiting with us. Our Q&A morning is previously submitted questions that someone has given to me uh, about a topic that they want me to address. And so I'm not going to be taking questions in this hour, but it's something that I've taken some time to prepare and answer. Sometimes you'll wonder how much time I've taken to prepare it because it might not be the best answer. But uh, to address some of the questions that you have and sort of uh, bring the congregation in to engage uh, what we're really struggling with or wondering about or thinking about in Scripture. So that's what we're doing this morning. Now you can read it. Uh, what does the Bible say about instructing my child about physical self-defense? Okay, this is a tough question. So you have two elements to the question. Uh, one is the idea of physical self-defense generally. Okay, what does the Bible teach about self-defense? Which is a tough question and a, and a big can of worms. Uh, and then there is the question about how do we teach that to our children? The concern, of course, being, uh, well, if we teach our children not to defend themselves, are we setting them up to be victims, to be bullied, and that sort of thing? Uh, how do we, as Christian parents, transmit what the Bible teaches about self-defense down to the next generation? So whatever we say about self-defense has to begin, in my view, here in Matthew chapter 5, with Jesus' statements about resisting evil. So let's just read that, Matthew 5, beginning in verse 38. Matthew 5 and verse 38, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So what Jesus says is, of course, strongly against the ethic of the culture of his day. You have that statement in verse 38. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That was intended to be a judicial statement. 
about what the government or the judge could mete out as punishment. If in the old law you had these statements, if you hurt me in this way, then, I, then the, the state will hurt you in the same way. So what you lose, what you take from someone else, you lose yourself. So that idea of proportional penalty. But in Jesus' time, it appears that this was taken to be a personal thing. So if you hit me, I get to hit you back. And so it becomes a, a justification for revenge. And Jesus says in response to that, I say don't resist the one who is evil, verse 39. And you get the idea in verse 39, if he, if he slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek. And these statements have even go beyond what someone is trying to do to you and allowing yourself to be harmed in these situations. Then he talks about loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you, a certain response to people. that we don't only love the people that love us, but that we have an obligation to show love and to show concern even for people who make themselves our enemies. This is all in the context of revenge and retaliation. So I want to keep that in mind. Revenge and retaliation is what Jesus is really addressing. And as I'll talk about in a moment, some of this has gotten wrapped up in a different debate, an argument about pacifism, sometimes even the question of war and being in the military, and those kinds of questions that I don't believe are really fitting for the context. That what Jesus is really talking about, seems to me, is not physical violence. What Jesus seems to be talking about to me are those situations where people harm us, perhaps not physically, and we have the response that we want to retaliate and get back at them. And Jesus says that's an improper response. And so he says, you need to be different because you're my disciples. All right, let's look over in Romans chapter 12. Romans 12 adds a little to this. This is Romans 12 and verse 14. Romans 12 and verse 14. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is th hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So bless those who persecute you, he says. Don't repay evil for evil. Never avenge yourselves. Show kindness to your enemies. And in doing so, when we respond that way to people who want to harm us, whatever way, he says in verse 21, we overcome evil with good. So they do evil, and we overcome their evil by responding with good to that. So you see, this echoes very much what Jesus said about turning the other cheek and not resisting an evil person and loving our enemies. All of this is tying together as sort of a Christian worldview about when people try to oppose us or even harm us. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I want to just add this to the discussion, and then we'll begin to draw some conclusions. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. <clears throat> If you've paid much attention when I've talked about this before, uh, you know that this is one of my favorite passages just because of the way it is worded. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 6, uh, Paul is addressing Christians who have a problem with one another and they're taking each other to court before the Gentiles. So that's a, an embarrassment because they should be able to resolve their differences with people who are there in the church. That there's someone wise in the church that can help them decide these kinds of issues. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 5, he says, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? 
Verse 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. So Christians have a problem with one another and they're seeking a remedy. Someone to tell them you're right and they're wrong and to possibly even make that wrong right uh, financially or whatever way. And he says, this is already a defeat. You've already lost before you started, because he says in verse 7 there, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? And I love that question because it's a probing question. Sometimes we take questions like self-defense questions and we make them into statements about, you know, if somebody were to break into your house and all this stuff, when really the, the heart of Christian teaching is about what is there in me that thinks I should never have any kind of, I should never have to suffer any kind of wrong of any kind. That when I'm hurt, people should pay. And that is the heart of revenge, is that I deserve to have everybody treat me well all the time or else. Where we know that nobody really lives that way. We all have things that happen to us that are unfortunate. Sometimes we're victims of people. And so this is the question that it seems to me gets at the heart of Christian teaching, which is why is it that we can't learn like Jesus did to suffer wrong or to be defrauded? So... I want to say these passages that we've looked at have a lot to do with revenge. Learning to absorb evil rather than just thinking that everything needs to be remedied by us. So in other words, I would say, and this distinction has kind of been lost in the modern debate, it's less about self-defense in my view and more about revenge and retaliation. Now sometimes we get those things confused and conflated because... Sometimes we have this this idea, this philosophy, that retaliation is a kind of defense. Okay, And that could be in certain situations, but I don't see that really as the heart of Jesus' teaching. Jesus is not saying this is about not defending yourself in any way, but it's more about I'm not going to retaliate when people hurt us. So, uh, as I mentioned earlier, these verses have become part of a long-standing debate, actually a couple of debates, one about self-defense, and one about pacifism generally. Sometimes that ties into the question of whether someone could serve in the military and be a Christian. Um, That's a shame that it's been drawn into a debate about that in my view because that's not really the context of these passages. Uh, These passages are not really addressing the idea of pacifism generally. That is, should we ever have violence in any form? It's not really addressing the idea of the military at all in my view. Uh, Instead, these are passages about ordinary life that you and I live in where people hurt us. People do things to us that they shouldn't, and how we respond to them. Are we going to be a retaliatory people and try to take our own revenge? So, what does the Bible say about instructing my child about physical self-defense? So the question is really about what we teach our children, and that is thorny. See, there are these two extremes in this question. For one, we don't want to put our children in situations where they'll be taken advantage of. So that's one concern. And on the other hand, I don't want my children to grow up without understanding and knowing what Jesus teaches about situations like this. Because I have protected them so much from these situations, or even teaching them to do something that's the opposite of what Jesus had said to do in such situations. So there's a need for balance, in my view. I would say... I believe there's a difference between fighting back and standing up for yourself. 
Do you understand what I mean? So on one hand, fighting back is the idea that if someone tries to hurt me, I try to hurt them back. Standing up for myself is the idea that I'm not just going to allow myself to be run over and I can say something or try to do something about it, perhaps without resorting to violence. I don't believe those are the same thing. So while on the one hand, I don't want my child to be taking his matters into his own hands and succumbing to violence, on the other hand, I do want my child to learn that he can say or do something that could keep him from being a victim. So... It seems wise to me, as a parent, that there are times when I need to be teaching my children and talking to them about how to develop skills to resolve conflict without violence. Don't we need that as adults? Okay? As adults, they're not going to be allowed to become violent with others when they have a disagreement. They have to learn to resolve conflict without violence. So it seems to me wise, not only as a Christian, but also just as a citizen, to help my children learn that there are other ways to resolve differences without violence. And so these would be a great opportunities to do that. But I also think these situations give us golden opportunities as parents to talk to our kids about this is the real stuff of being a Christian. This is what it's like. It's like other people are taking the low road when we try to take the high road. That's what it's like. And I don't want to miss that opportunity, while at the same time I don't want to just put my kid in harm's way. So you see, both of those have to be considered. So, end of the day, here's my advice, my best shot at answering this question. Make the wisest decision you can about how to advise your children. First, don't encourage violence. I was encouraged at times to be violent when I was a child. I do not believe I can sit here as a Christian teacher and say our parents should be encouraging violence. However, take seriously your obligation to take care of your kids. That is a primary obligation of parents. And we need to take that seriously without encouraging violence. Remember, Jesus' teaching is for us. It's not just something that's old and in the Bible and that's what... You know, that sounds really good on paper, but that doesn't work in real life. If anything, I do not want my children to think that Jesus' teaching is impractical or it's not for them. However, it is also true that it may be something that they have to grow into and learn to accept in time to see it's the better way. I think that's the way we all have had to do it too, who are parents. So that's the best I can do. Uh, think about both those things. Don't encourage violence, but at the same time, uh, don't allow your children to be uh, victims in those ways. All right, so whew, you get myself into trouble with that one. Let's let's keep going. All right. Uh, the next question is: Does God hear the prayer of sinners? Let's go to John chapter nine. Does God hear the prayer of sinners? This question originates with a passage, and then extrapolates out from that to a principle uh, that I want to talk about for a few minutes uh, because I've been asked about it. John chapter nine. And verse 31, these are the words of the man who was blind, but then Jesus healed him so that now he can see. John 9 and verse 31, he says, We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. So the question is, is this accurate? Does God just not hear the prayer of sinners? That seems to be what the blind man is saying. You look at it again, he says, We know that God does not listen to sinners. 
So, this is a historically divisive idea. And really, the, the heart of this issue stems from the fact that many in the denominational world have taught for a few centuries now that the way you become a Christian is to say a prayer. Instead of the idea of repenting and being baptized, having your sins washed away like the New Testament talks about, they say the way you become a Christian is you accept Christ into your heart and you say this prayer. And the prayer is essentially, I accept you into my heart. Okay, so... Some, in response to that, have said, well, God doesn't even hear the prayer of sinners, John 9, 31. So they would say, oh, that's a way you can, you can argue against the sinner's prayer idea. Well, first of all, I want to say, in regards to John 9, 31, what the blind man is talking about here is not a theology of God and sinners and prayer. He is talking about Jesus and his miracles. Okay, that's the point he is making. Because they're asking him, or he is talking about what Jesus has done, and he says, Jesus has done something that has never been heard of in the history of the world. Could a sinner do that? In other words, he has access to God's power. Do we think that God is going to empower a sinner to do amazing works that have never been seen? That's his argument. Now, it's not really about prayer as much as it is about the power and the relationship that that power implies. So could prayer be a part of that? Sure, but I don't really think he's talking about prayer in itself. But if you want to take his statement in John 9, 31, I would say that it is roughly true of prayer, roughly, broadly. I'm going to show you a number of passages. I'm going to put them on the board. If you're taking notes, you might just jot down the citations and look at them later. But basically, I would say that the basic teaching, the broad teaching of the Bible about prayer is that prayer is based on a right relationship with God. Prayer is a privilege of a relationship with God. Uh, 1 Peter 3, verse 10, this is Peter quoting from a psalm, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You get the idea there. Do right, live as you should, and you'll be able to call on God when you need him because the eyes and the ears of the Lord are there for the righteous. He will hear their prayer, but he's against those who do evil. Uh, Psalm 66, 18, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Proverbs 28, 9, if one turns, it, turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Now, in that one, I wouldn't argue so much it's about prayer. I think he's saying even when he prays, it's bad. So it's sort of an, an exaggeration. Uh, God says this in Isaiah 1, When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. That's not a hard idea, right? Okay, so you can keep praying to me all you want, but when you keep killing people, I'm not going to listen. So God is saying prayer is not really going to work in this situation. Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, that, that can't be right. My word abides in you. Whoever is typing these out, we need to get a new guy for that. Uh, my word abides in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. John 15, 7. So the idea is abiding in me. My words are in you. Then there is this uh, prayer privilege. And 1 John 3, 21, 22. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. So you get the idea. Uh, that's the general idea in the Bible. However, however, I have to say, I'm not sure that the Bible record allows us to draw a firm line about this. I want you to go with me to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. 
while I'd say that's the broad or the rough view, I think there has to be more added to this equation. With the example of someone like the man we find in Acts chapter 10. Acts 10 and verse 1. At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. So Cornelius is a Gentile. He is a seeker. You can see that from some of the things he's doing. He's a devout man. He's praying. He's giving even though he is a Gentile and he doesn't know about the true God except what he's learned from the Jewish people he's living among. But it says specifically that he prayed continually to God. And then in verse 4 it says specifically, your prayers have been heard as a memorial before God. Did God hear Cornelius' prayer? I have no question. There is no wondering. Absolutely, yes, he did. Was Cornelius a sinner? Yes. So does God hear the prayers of sinners? Hmm. You see what's happening? Okay. We, we could stack all those other passages, but here you have a clear example of someone who is a sinner, but who's seeking God, and God hears his prayer. So what's interesting about that is that the prayer doesn't save Cornelius. If you know anything about the story in Acts 10, you know that this uh, angel appearing to him, the vision that Peter has, all of this conspires so that Peter goes to Cornelius' house and preaches the gospel to him and his family and his friends, and they become Christians when they're baptized. Okay, so this is not the end of the story for Cornelius. Well, I heard your prayer and you're saved. In fact, it seems to me that maybe one of his prayers was, help me know what I need to do to be saved. Because God's going to send the man who can help him, and that's Peter. Drop down a little bit, Acts 10 and verse 34. Acts 10 and verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So that's what's important to God. That's what's important to God about Cornelius. That's what's important to God about anyone. Doesn't matter what they're, where they're from or how they were raised or anything like that. But whoever fears God and works righteousness is acceptable to him. So there is going to be this broader view than just someone who is currently in the state of sinner when there are people who are seeking God and who may take time to find God. Let me give you another example. This is uh, Acts 16. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside to the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Lydia becomes a Christian. But Lydia is like Cornelius. She is a seeker. She's down at the river praying to God at place of prayer because there evidently was no synagogue in Philippi and she's there at the river praying and then she becomes a Christian she is a seeker there is no idea here in fact Luke calls her a worshiper of God okay she is a worshiper of God she's a prayer but she still needs to hear the gospel and obey it and be saved so does God hear the prayer of those sinners I think we can say, yes, he does hear the prayer of those sinners. And the real reason there is because they are seeking God and they're wanting to do what's right. I want you to go with me to the book of Jonah for just a moment. Jonah chapter 3. I've got to stop talking so I can do the books of the Bible. Jonah chapter 3. 
I just realized I've got a third question, and I'm absolutely, there's no way I'm going to get to it this morning. But we will, we will finish this one up. Uh, Jonah chapter 3 and verse 6. So remember, the story of Jonah is that the city of Nineveh is wicked, and Jonah is told to go cry out against it 40 days, and the city is going to be overthrown. So Jonah 3 and verse 6 the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent from, and turn from his fierce anger, so that we may not perish." When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Did you catch that? The king is so serious about this that he tells the beasts to fast and pray. Wow. Okay, they are scared. And so they call out to God, and they say, maybe God will hear this and quit. And maybe God will relent of the disaster. And does God hear their prayer? Yes, God hears their prayer. And God relents of the disaster because they asked him to, because they changed their hearts. So, here is my point. It seems to me that what we're reading about in these cases of Cornelius and Lydia and the Ninevites is that it's far more about the heart and the disposition toward God than it is about that category that they're in. Are they sinners? These men in Nineveh are sinners. They are such bad sinners that God's about to destroy their city. But God hears the prayer of sinners when sinners turn from their sin and seek Him. The seeking God is what's important about this. So, as these examples show, sometimes seeking God takes us on a journey that might take time before we find Him. That's true with Cornelius. That's true with Lydia. I'm not sure how long this was in, in Nineveh, but it was at least some time between their sin and their turning to God and their God relenting of, their, of his uh, punishment. I am comfortable, based on these passages, saying that God hears the prayers of seekers who are trying to find him, who are groping for him. Now, if we rebel against God, or if we stubbornly refuse to do what we know God expects, I can give no assurance that God hears us. And that is true whether we, we categorize ourselves as sinners or Christians or whatever we might say about ourselves. If we are stubbornly resistant to God, that is exactly the problem we detailed in all those passages I put on the board. That we are in rebellion, we have no assurance that God's going to hear and answer our prayers. One more thing, then we'll be done. I want to make clear that the New Testament talks about the border crossing action, the way we get from a, a place of sin to a place of salvation as baptism. In Acts 2.38, Peter says, Repent, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And that word for means into the remission of sins. It is a border crossing word. We go from one state to another. Prayer is not what takes us from one state to another. But what prayer is, prayer is an opportunity we have to approach God and to ask for His help in times of need. And that is true for those who are seeking God, who are asking and seeking and knocking. 
as long as their heart is turned toward God to do what he says, I have no problem saying God is able and willing to hear their prayer and to try to pull them together with somebody like Philip in the case of the Ethiopian eunuch or Paul in the case of Lydia or Peter in the case of Cornelius and to put people who are seeking together with people who have found and to help them. And I'm not sure that that's stopped today. In fact, I'm confident that it has not stopped today, that God hears the prayers of seekers. So to answer the question directly, if we seek God and his will earnestly, he'll listen to us. All right, well, we'll have to save this one for later. Uh, where did Satan come from? Next month. Next month. Uh, I hope you can see how hard a job Tuck had picking out songs. Can you see now? Between those three, I'm not sure that we, the, all the physical self-defense songs, I'm not sure about those. So Anyway, I appreciate him taking care of that. All right, guys, well, thank you so much for your attention. We'll be dismissed for our classes.